Children, I wanted to start with you. I want you to notice in the bulletin the list of words, as always, that are there for you to be listening, to count. Um, but I also wanted to let you know that I'm going to ask a question in just a moment, and the question is just as much for you as, as the adults. The question is as much for you as it is your parents. The question is for everyone in the room. So I hope this, uh, tonight that you will pay close attention, and um, I want to do something besides that that I typically don't do, and I think it's safe to say I probably have not done in two and a half years, and I want to begin with a story. Um, the story is of a missionary in South America, and uh, he, on a 120-degree day, decided he wanted to cool off, and he wanted to take a swim in the river that was there near where he lived, but before he did so, he asked his neighbors, some of the locals, if it would be safe for him to swim in that river, considering there were piranha in the river. Um, if you don't know, children, what piranha are, they are uh, man-eating fish. Um, and so he asks all the locals, and the locals say, sure, you can swim in, in the river here because piranha only attack in schools, and uh, they don't swim in schools in this part of the river. So he spent the rest of the summer uh, swimming in the river, cooling off at the end of the day, and was appreciative of it until come fall... And there was a story of a fisherman that had been out in his boat in that part of the river, and he had fallen out of his boat, and he was never found again. And so this missionary goes back to the locals and says, are you sure that it's safe to swim in this part of the river? With the piranha and the story of this fisherman, they said, we assure you it's safe to swim in this part of the river because the piranha uh, do not... Um, attack, they, they only attack in schools, and they don't swim in schools in this part of the river. And, and so the, it dawned on the missionary, th thought he ought to ask, you know, so why don't piranha swim in schools in this part of the river? And they answered, uh, piranha don't swim in schools where there are alligators. Questions are very important to ask. It's important to ask questions. It's important to ask the right types of questions. Asking questions is actually an art. Uh, it's something that you need to learn to do. It's something that you have to concentrate on. It's something that you have to uh, practice. It requires a great deal of thought. It also requires the, uh, requires the ability to listen well, to watch nonverbals, and most important, it requires a genuine interest in knowing the truth. There, there must be a desire to know the truth. Uh, lawyers must learn how to ask questions because they want to know the truth, and quite honestly, there are times that some lawyers don't. And so they have to learn how to ask the right questions to get the exact information that they want. Their questions have to be appropriate depending on what they desire to hear. 
That doesn't apply to Ryan, by the way. Um, doctors have to ask the right questions. Right? They, they, they need to ask certain questions because the responses they receive will determine a particular plan of action. And in some cases, it can determine. It can be the difference between life and death. Mechanics have to ask the right questions. My daughter and her uh, husband were on their way back from Michigan last week, and, and they had brake trouble. So they call his grandfather, who is a mechanic, and he began asking questions, helping, helping them determine what it was, and he determined it was a master cylinder rather than the uh, pads and um, rotor, which I was grateful for because I had replaced the pads and rotor the summer before. Um, teachers have to ask the right questions. Right? They need to know and, and help students with subject-verb agreements and, and certain steps in long division, and they have to be able to hone in and figure out what it is that they need to know. Pastors need to learn how to ask the right questions to diagnose deep spiritual issues so that we can apply the gospel to the heart, soul, and mind appropriately. Questions. Asking questions is very, very important. And I begin there, and I began the way that I did because Jesus was the master question asker. He knew how to ask questions. He knew exactly what needed to be asked because he was wanting those that he was talking with and those of whom he was asking questions to discover what they were actually thinking and feeling and believing. And ultimately, he wanted them to know and believe the truth. And he got to, to the bottom of their issues by asking those questions. And his questions were always for the benefit of those he was asking more than it was for himself. And the question he asks in our passage tonight is, is actually the most important question that anyone has ever been asked or will be asked. And it's the most important question that anyone will ever has and will ever answer. And in the passage, he asks the apostles... Who do you say that I am? And Luke places it here as he's been doing all along, right? He's been placing it here, strate he's placed it here strategically so that Theophilus can be asked and so that you and I tonight can be asked the same question. Who do you say? We can hear the Lord. Who do you say that I am? And so it's the question, children, that I said just a moment ago, we're going to ask of all of us in the room, and it's the question I'm going to begin with, it's the question I'm going to end with, and the question, of course, is who do you say that He is? Who do you say the Lord Jesus is? Our outline tonight, we have four points, of course, as we look through these uh, five short verses. We're going to look at the propositions of the people, the proclamation of Peter, the prediction of Jesus, and then finally the profession of us all. And before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, always do. Father, by your spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your word. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention, open our sorrows, convict us and challenge us where need be. And then we ask, as always, for you to refresh us and encourage us and comfort us that, 
as we see Jesus and as we hear his gospel tonight. I, of course, as always, am weak and needy for the task to which you've called me, and so I ask that you would support and strengthen me, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would help me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and with grace, that I might do something for you this evening, that I might do so for the sake of Christ and His church. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, our passage tonight in verses 18 to 22 begins with Jesus praying. Uh, it's a very common refrain, and, and it may seem it, it would be easy to kind of pass by and, and treat it as a, a minor descriptive point, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's a point of much significance because it lets us know that something important is about to follow. It's something that we've seen throughout the gospel so far. We're going to continue to see it as we progress through the gospel. But Jesus always prayed prior to something significant happening. Prior to those critical points in his life and ministry, Jesus would take time to withdraw and go to the Father in prayer. We've seen it in chapter 3. We've seen it a couple times in chapter 4. We saw it in chapter 6, and now we come to it in chapter 9 here in verse 18. And we don't know what he was praying. It's interesting. We're not told what he was praying. We don't know if he was praying uh, for himself, if he was praying for his disciples, if he was praying for what was just about to happen, what was imminent, or if it was something, uh, if he was praying for everything that was about to unfold, because this is a very definitive, a very definitive turning point in this gospel. And what we do know is that he took the time, he was alone, he withdrew by himself to pray to the Father. And yet, while praying alone, he wasn't by himself, right? He has been traveling with his apostles and with others. The disciples are with him, and as a group, they had finally found time to withdraw and to receive that rest that they had been desiring from ministry and from the hectic uh, pace and the chaos of uh, of all the crowds that were present. And in the midst of that break, he, Jesus comes out of his time of prayer and he asks the question, who do the crowds say that I am? What are people saying? What, what are they believing about me? Who do they believe that I am? And together they begin to answer. Popcorn answers. One says John the Baptist. The other says, well, others are saying Elijah. And someone said, well, what about, I heard someone say it was one of the prophets of old that had risen. And so the, what, we're, what we realize as we listen to those answers is that the, the people in the crowd had their own wide and varied opinions about who Jesus was. And it was all based upon their limited intellect or their limited knowledge. Others were simply guessing, taking a shot in the dark. Some had been basing it on their own imaginations, conjuring up images of who he was. Others were forming their opinions based on their experience, right? They had, they had heard him preach and teach. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They had watched him heal the sick. They had seen him exercise demons, and so they, they were basing it on, on firsthand experience. And, right? Some were saying, well, he is God's representative, and the Lord has sent him. 
He's been doing things on God's behalf. But there wasn't any real confidence coming from the crowd. And of course, not much has changed today. If I were to ask you the same question, who do the people in your neighborhood say that Jesus is? Who do the people you work with say that Jesus is? Kids, if you went to school, if you go to school, and we say, um, you know, Ask If you were to ask your friends at school, who would they say Jesus is? And I'm sure all of, all of you would get a vast number of responses depending on your neighborhood. You would hear some of these same uh, similar things, ideas of who Jesus was based on their limited knowledge, their own imagination, uh, who they wanted him to be rather than on who he really was. And these, these responses, though wide and varied, would be coming from both believers and non-believers, from Christians and, and or from uh, non-Christians and professing Christians. The answers would really be all over the board. And they had In many cases, they would be acknowledging him in part, but they would be refraining from getting on board with everything about who he was. They could, they could, they don't want to believe or they're not believing that he's just some ordinary average guy, but they're not going to go full board and and go all the way with who he is, because if they go all the way with who he is, then they got to deal with what he came to do. And they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to have to answer the question, what did he come to do? But we'll come back to that in a minute. But notice, rather than spend time, they don't, he, he doesn't get them together and say, okay, we need to discuss how we can make it more clear for the crowds. They don't talk about how they might change the minds of those in the crowd. They don't try to figure out pragmatic ways to win the crowd over. He immediately asks the question again. But this time he changes his focus, he changes the direction, and rather than talk about the crowds, he points it directly back at them. And it's emphatic. Who do you say that I am? Okay, I get what they say, but what do you say? What about you? What do you say about me? What say you? And as we learned back in October, actually September of last year, when we looked at this passage in, the, um, in Matthew's gospel, we know that he's asking them together, and Peter, of course, jumps in as the spokesperson, as he tended to do, and he blurts out, you are the Christ of God. And Peter was doing more than just acknowledging who Jesus was. He's making a a public declaration. He is proclaiming publicly that Jesus is the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. He is 
blurting out that this is the warrior king, this is the anointed one, this is the one who has come, you are the one that has come to deliver us from the oppression and tyranny of our enemies and to reign mightily and to reign with authority. You're going to reign with the, the same mighty hand and outstretched arm that, that God had reigned with over our fathers when He led them out of Egypt. We're anticipating you to do the same thing. Right? They as good Jews had been waiting for that. They had been waiting for that one who would be from the line of David, who would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They had been looking for the servant of God. And no doubt they had heard about the things that he had done before their arrival on the scene. They had heard that he had been anointed by the Spirit. And, and anointing, of course, was a common Old Testament practice in regards to prophet, priests, and kings. So he's been anointed. They've heard what he said in, in Isaiah in the synagogue that day. He said that he had come to fulfill Isaiah 51 and Isaiah, Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. And then they had been with him as he had been doing the things that were authenticating exactly who he claimed to be. So they too had been watching. They were eyewitnesses. They hadn't just heard. They were eyewitnesses of the things that he was doing. They had heard him teach, of course, but they were watching him heal the sick and raise the dead and exercising demons. And most notably, they had heard him and watched him offer forgiveness of sin that only the one from the throne of grace could offer. And it's important to note something here, and that is the fact that Peter and the others had come to very different conclusions than those in the crowd. They had been hearing and watching the same things. And yes, the disciples had, the apostles had been with him. They were a closer-knit group, and, and there may have been some side conversations, but for the most part, they're seeing and hearing the same things. But they hadn't come to the conclusions on their own. What set them apart, and what we learned again back in September, is what set them apart was that flesh and blood had not revealed these things to them. Right? Matthew records that Jesus responds at this moment and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Their answer had been spiritually appraised. Right? They were able to apprehend who Jesus was only because the Spirit of God had worked within them. This wasn't, this wasn't based on their own imagination. This wasn't just because they had conjured up this idea in their mind. They weren't connecting dots that weren't present. They were connecting dots that were there, but they were connecting them only because of what the Spirit had done within them and what the Spirit was revealing. But notice in verse 21, Jesus' response. He responds to Peter's proclamation, and it's interesting, if not startling, it wouldn't be what we would anticipate. He says, well, Luke says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He's been preaching and teaching the good news of the gospel, and, and the apostles get who he is. Why, why would he not want them to announce it, to run through the streets and let them know that this is the Messiah? 
And this isn't just this sheepish request arising from humility. It's not that Jesus doesn't like to be the center of attention. It's not that Jesus just wants to kind of pull back and he really doesn't want anybody to make a big deal about who he is. It's not that at all. In Luke's gospel, this word that's translated charged, other places in the gospel, 11 other times it's translated rebuke. And so what Jesus is doing, Jesus has got, we can, we can believe he's got a, 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 his brow is furrowed, he's, his finger is raised, and there's intensity in his voice, and he commands them, he says, don't tell anyone what you just said. Probably takes them aback. And, and again, we ask why. why. Why would he say that? Why the intensity? And the answer course is the second half of verse 21. He makes a very bold and troubling prediction. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, Rise again. It's worth repeating that they were anticipating the Messiah. They were anticipating the King. They were anticipating the one who was going to save them from Roman oppression. They were excited for you know that brief moment when Peter makes the proclamation and they're thinking, yes. And it's short-lived. He was going to make all things right, politically, economically, socially, spiritually, but Jesus knew something they didn't know yet. You see, while they had a firm grasp on who he was, they didn't have a firm grasp on really what he came to do. They were right. He was the Messiah. He was from the line of David, and he was going to rule and reign. But they didn't understand what he must do first. They didn't understand that that servant of God must be a suffering servant. They hadn't put that together yet. And of course, this was the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read it. If you want to turn there, uh, I want to go back. We did cover and look through this uh, chapter of the suffering servant two and a half years ago, but I'd like to take a minute just to remind us of what it said. I want us to think about who, who the Bible reveals Jesus to be. And the third stanza is probably the most recognizable. Uh, Isaiah said that the Messiah was going to be smitten and stricken and afflicted, and pierced through, and crushed, and chastised, and wounded to the point of death. And all of that was going to be experienced for sinners like us. Right? Isaiah uses that personal language. It's go- he's going to do this for our transgressions, for our willful rebellion. He's going to do this for our iniquities, that the perversion of our nature due to sin. Uh, he's going to do this in every respect for our needs. 
He's going to do this for our moral and spiritual wrong and the guilt that is ours. He's going to bear our griefs. He's going to bear our sorrows. Any and everything that alienated us from God, he, or alienates us from God, He is going to handle in our place and on our, on our behalf. Despite the fact right, that, that we would all go our own way and would head in the opposite direction away from God, He is going to, in, in that language from Isaiah, and, and as, as Jesus is talking to the disciples, you know, this is looking ahead to what Jesus is going to do on the cross, but He's going to, he, even though we head in the op- opposite direction, He is going to intervene. In the language of Leviticus 16, Christ would be both the sacrificial lamb and shed His blood for the pur- purification of sin, but He was also going to be the scapegoat. Right? The sins were going to be placed upon Him to be carried away. And as a result, God's wrath would be satisfied and payment was going to be made and f- fellowship was going to be reestablished. In the fourth stanza of the prophecy, though, though He would be oppressed and afflicted and though uh, He would be unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly sentenced to death and crucified, He would never at one time offer any verbal or physical resistance. He would never be violent. He would never lie. There would be no wickedness within him. Nothing negative or wicked within his heart. And there was no ulterior motive in his mind of how this might be thwarted. Every step of the way it was voluntary. As one commentator put it, Christ would not be caught in a web of events or simply letting everything happen to Him. No, He would masterfully decide, accept, and submit with a clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness as He fulfilled a sin-bearing exercise. We think, it's pretty emphatic, why is that important? And, and we know and understand that well, willful and rebellious sinners need a willful and consenting substitute. That's one of the reasons that the sacrifices of bulls and goats don't satisfy. Just as we choose to sin, Christ would choose to submit and suffer in our place. And finally, in verses 10 to 12, Isaiah said that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will. It was the Father's will to crush the Son. And it it wasn't pleasurable, but it was His plan. It was His desire. But remember, the Son was voluntarily going. He would voluntarily go to the cross. So He would submit and He would voluntarily take on this task for Himself. So we can say it was the Father's will to crush Him. But that will was joyfully and lovingly embraced by the Son. And that was because he knew he would be successful. Verse 14 of chapter 53 lays it out pretty clearly. It was out of the anguish of his soul that he would be satisfied. And so the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew that many would would become righteous. 
And that would be worth bearing their iniquities. And we, if you remember, we, we have that promised language again at the end of the chapter, right? He would see his offspring. He would prosper. He would make many to be accounted righteous. He would bear their iniquities. He would take on their, the sins of many. He would pour out his soul to the point of death. He would make intercession. His satisfaction and his joy would come because he wasn't simply making salvation possible for everyone. His satisfaction and joy would come not due to securing salvation partly and then sit back and wait for others to do their part. His satisfaction came because he fully and finally accomplished on the cross, he experienced the anguish of his soul because he would successfully save his people. He would secure salvation for his own. He would bear the sin of many. Those for whom he died would come to salvation. He would be theirs. They would be his. They were his inheritance. They were his reward. And so Jesus then tells the apostles, he says, wait. Because all of this is coming. All of this that the prophet said would come, it's here. All of this is going to be accomplished in me. And people aren't going to understand. Right? He tells the disciples, you've got to wait. You know, you think you're struggling, right? Just think of what the crowds are going to do. They're not where you are as far as who I am. You have got who I am down. You start proclaiming what I came to do. So let's hold off on even who I am. Wait. Wait until it's all finished. Wait until it's accomplished. Then will be the time. Now, that leads us to our last point, which is the profession of us all. The Bible's clear, right? These five short verses, the Bible is clear. Jesus is the Christ of God. And as we, we've seen that through these, right, we've walked alongside and together as we've been reading through this gospel and Luke's been building and building and building. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And we're at that point, that turning point, and the question is being asked, and everything, and we know from this side of the cross, right, everything that he said he would do, he did. Everything that he claimed about himself was validated. Right? He left the Father's right hand. He took on flesh. He remained God, but he took on flesh and entered into the suffering and sorrow and rejection and despair of, and weakness of humanity so that he could salvage and redeem and set us free and, and set those free, uh, set everyone who repented of their sin and looked at him in faith, set them all free. And the question before us tonight is the question that I asked when we began. And the question we must ask is who do you say that he is?
And I've said since we began, because Luke has been, <laughs> Luke has been doing this over and over and over again. He says there are two choices before us. The two choices are before us. He either is who he said he is or he's not. He is either the Son of God, he is the Christ of God, or he's a lunatic. He can't be a good, just a good person. He can't be just a good teacher. He's either the Christ of God or he's not, and you can either accept him or reject him. You can either look to him or turn away from him. You can confess him, profess him, trust in him, or you can reject him. And the first option leads to life, and the second option leads to death. There's no alternative. And so there's some sub-questions that we need to ask. And if you're not a believer, if you've not professed Christ, I just want to ask you to think about why are you, why are you struggling, and, uh, struggling with acknowledging who He is? What's the struggle? What's the rub? Why are you struggling with who He is? Why are you struggling with the fact that the work He accomplished could have been on your behalf why are you struggling with your need of Him? Be honest and ask yourself those questions. And then I implore you to acknowledge your separation from Him. Acknowledge the enmity that you are experiencing with Him. Acknowledge your sin and your need of a Savior. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ. Look to Him. And then for those of us who have professed Christ, those who are resting in Him for their salvation, those who are trusting in Him because of His work on your behalf, let's ask, when we think of His sacrifice, when we think of what He's done, how do we respond today? When we think about His work on our behalf when we consider his payment for our sin, when we consider the free offer of the gospel, are we still in awe? Are we still in awe of what he... And brothers and sisters, we need to ponder anew Jesus, the Christ of God, who suffered for us. Let's go to him.